Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. The sermon title is Embracing Limitations. Embracing Limitations. Let's go ahead and pray and ask for the Lord's help again and trust that he's going to give it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we get to hear from you every single week. It's an astounding news. It's just so wonderful that you've spoken and you've not kept us in the dark, but you've told us what you think. You've told us what is right and wrong. You've told us what we need to know about life and how to walk in life and live in godliness. And we thank you that you're not silent. There's times that we feel like you're silent. There's times that our prayers feel like they're hitting the ceiling, but we open your Bible this morning, this word, this, and we hear from you, and we know that you're not silent. You're listening and you're speaking. And so help us to respond to you appropriately. Help us to learn all that we need to learn. Help us to submit to you. If there's anything that we, we come across today that we bump up against and think, oh, I don't know about that. God, help us to always submit what we think and what we feel to what you have to say. Help us not come to your word trying to shape your word with our feelings or with cultural with the, with the cultural moment, but help us to come to your word and submit cultural moments, submit what we think and we feel, and help us to just take up what you have to say. You're always right. You're always right. You're always good. And we thank you that you've spoken. Help me to preach faithfully today. I trust that you're going to do that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In so many areas of life, there are... There are you can boil problems down to two primary issues. And we, we've talked about this in the past, and you've probably talked about this just in conversations about any myriad of subjects. There's always two ditches that you can fall in with almost anything. And so there's the ditch on the right or the ditch on the left. And the goal in life is to walk in balance. You, wanna, you don't want to be out of balance in, in any way, actually. And, and today, Solomon's going to talk about some intellectual errors that we can make. And we're going to talk about two big intellectual errors that we can make. You can have intellectual pride or arrogance, and you can have intellectual waste, for lack of a better term. You can just waste the intellect that God has given you by shallow thinking. And intellectual pride, I think, is, is, is pretty obvious to point out or to figure out. Uh, it's the man or woman who thinks they have everything figured out. They think that they know it all and only want to teach others with their wisdom that they have. They just think that they've got it all figured out. The intellectually pride person is always the teacher, never the learner. And so they've got the answer for everything. And they can know, they think, what no one else can know. If, if somebody's not figured something out, it's because they've not yet showed up on the scene. And the intellectually pride, proud, proud person is easy to figure out. It's, it's the person who uh, thinks that they know when Jesus is coming back. You know, the person who thinks that they've got the date and they've got it all figured out when the exact moment, you, you hear these people every, every so often that, that come up in the news where they've, put the, the next date about when Christ is supposed to return, this intellectually proud person. They have this secret knowledge that nobody else knows. They love, they, they think, the deep things of God, and they're the only ones that have got the deep things of God figured out. They usually have some things that they think that are different than everybody else in the Christian faith, so it's just, they, I've, I've got this one way, the secret knowledge, and oh, by the way, you need me to unlock the, unlock the key to all the secret knowledge. But then the, the other side of the ditch is that the intellectually wasteful person, they, they don't use their mind um, on the things that really matter. So they waste their mind on things that don't matter as much. And so uh, it, it's the kind of person that just feels their way through life. 
and, and then uses their mind on their hobbies, but not on the things of God. And so I, I, I've seen, seen this time and time again where somebody uses their mind and takes their intellectual vigor and all the energy they have and they apply themselves to their work. But then when it comes to the Bible, they don't want to mess with all that theology stuff. They just, I, I want to stay in the shallow end when it comes to the things of God. I don't want to think deeply about the things of God. But when it comes to their hobby, they can tell you the ins and outs of every single matter when it comes to, you know, whatever their hobby is. And so it's, it's the kind of guy that knows everything about Cardinal Baseball, but, and it's the Christian guy who knows everything about Cardinal Baseball down to the farm league, and they don't know anything about, you know, the Book of Romans. It's intellectual, wasteful person where they're wasting their mind on things that just aren't as important. They love the shallows when it comes to God, and it's really disastrous. Both of these things can be quite disastrous. And Sol Solomon's going to show us that there's a middle ground, there's a better way. We can know what God has revealed. We can know for certain what God has revealed in his word. And then there are some secret things or hidden things that we cannot know. There are things that he has hidden from us, things that are not intended for us to know. And so for the intellectually proud person, they're going to really struggle with the idea of God hiding some things from us. Some secret things that belong to him and him alone. We're going we're to struggle and think, well, why? Why didn't he just unlock, unlock all the secret things and let me know? Or I, I'm going to be the one that actually figures out the, th the secret things of God or the sovereign will of God. And there's others who, who don't even want to approach the revealed will of God. They don't even like what he has revealed. So it's the kind of man or woman who looks at the scriptures and sees some sort of sexual ethic presented and says, I don't like that. It doesn't meet my sensibilities. I don't even like what's revealed in God's word. So I'm going to stay in the shallow end and just say, yeah, we can't really know anything. And say that God has not actually spoken on things that he has spoken about. And so we want to avoid these two errors. And we, want to, we want to agree with God in his revealed will, what he has said and declared to be absolutely clear and true. We want to agree with that. And then we also want to submit to the fact that there are the secret things of God that belong to him that we cannot, we cannot figure out. And depending upon who you are and what ditch you kind of swim in or run in or fall in, uh, there's going to be aspects of this sermon, this text today, that's going to frustrate you one way or the other. And so the idea is, let's, let's get in line with what God has to say. Let's submit where we need to submit and obey where we need to obey. First, we're going to hear about wisdom in verse 1. And we're going to hear, hear and see that wisdom brings joy. Look at verse 1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. We're going to talk about wisdom today. This is wisdom literature. Andy brought up some really good questions in the sermon last week as he went through the text and he talked about uh, peculiar providences. Peculiar providences. We're going to consider some more peculiar providences today. But out of the gate, Solomon brings us back to a place of wisdom and just says that a man's face shines when he has wisdom. And the hardness of his heart is changed. Wisdom, if we have it, for the man or woman who has wisdom, it changes things for that person. When you have knowledge about any given topic and you have the ability to use that knowledge in a way that's appropriate, it will make your face shine. In other words, when you know how to do something, the proper way to do something, not just having the knowledge to do it, but the actual ability to use that knowledge, it brings a man or woman joy. And I think you can see this in your life. When you've accomplished something, and you've taken your knowledge and appropriately used that knowledge in a given scenario or, or the task, and you step back and think, huh, that, that, it, it brings joy. There's an element of joy when you know how to use a knowledge that you have in an appropriate way. I know how to do this. And when we know how to do something, it's a good thing. Wisdom carries with it benefits. It brings joy in such a way it changes a, a sorrowful face into a face of smile, smiles. 
And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to apply this wisdom and hopefully we're going to get a change of face. We're going to apply this wisdom and hopefully get a change of face. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the Lord, for the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Keep the king's command. Now, we're going to get personal here. Solomon is going to speak about himself. And it's interesting. In the Old Testament, uh, you see people like Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And at one point, he said that, that he was the most humble of all men. The Holy Spirit inspired Moses to write that he was the most humble of all men. Now, that's an interesting thing, because if I got up here and said, I'm the most humble man you'll ever meet, <laughs> you'd say, well, that's not too humble of you, Jared. <laughs> but the Holy Spirit inspired him to do this. And then the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write these words, these words that are about himself. He's saying, keep the king's command. Keep the king's command because of God's oath that was made to him. And as Solomon is pinning these words, I believe as an older man looking back in repentance to all the mistakes he's made and wanting to preach to us, to teach to us, teach us, to warn us from falling into the pits that he fell into, he remembers the oath that God made to him. The oath in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 10 through 14, where Solomon prays a prayer to God and he doesn't ask for riches. He doesn't ask for the things that you would think people would ask for when they have this request before the Lord. God tells them, you can ask for anything. Solomon asked for wisdom, for a mind of prudence. And God gives him, the, the mind, gives him what he asked, but then blesses him with riches as well. God makes this oath with Solomon to give him wisdom. And so Solomon, as he's saying, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him and don't be hasty to go, to go from his presence. He is remembering this prayer and this answer to prayer that God gave him. And Solomon retained that mind even, well, until he was foolishly seduced by the women that he warned others about. But in this moment, he is confident that God's hand is with him and he is speaking real wisdom. And, and, you know, as I'm thinking about this, keep the king's command, I, I do wonder, because we've been thinking about as a church and wrestling as an elder team, you know, how to, with, with uh, the restrictions given to us by Governor Pritzker and all the things that's been going on in our country since COVID for the last six months, and we've been wrestling through what, what does it obediently look like to obey the Lord rather than man and yet still submit to those in authority and, and to elected or appointed officials. We've been wrestling through this. And, and as he says, keep the king's command, I'm immediately kind of bumping up against this difficulty because I don't have a king to obey. I don't have a king in this way to obey like Solomon is saying to obey. Because in America, the king's authority has been dispersed to the people. So we don't have a king. The king's power that was taken from England and, and then over here in America, when, the, when, when we went against the king's power violating its own law, we decided when we set, it up, set up the government that we set up in America to disperse the king's power to the people. And so civilians in our country govern ourselves. And we elect officials. We don't have a king in the same way that many people have kings. We're a nation of self-governance with elected representatives and balances of power. So what we have to do when we're thinking about this passage, it's almost like we have to put ourselves under the rule of King Solomon. We have to put ourselves there. We have to imagine ourselves, okay, I am listening to, to King Solomon speak to me, and I am an Israelite under his rule and under his authority, and I want to hear him in that way. We have to put ourselves as if we're in a monarchy, 
imagine ourselves being a subject of Solomon. And then I think we're going to unlock a few things. We're going to have some principles to apply in our world today. Remember, this is personal. Look at verse 3 and 4. Do not go hastily from his presence. Do not take your stand in evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the Lord is king, the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Okay, um, Solomon says, don't be quick to leave the king's presence. And as he's writing that, he's like, don't be quick to leave my presence. We have to wonder why. Why should we not be quick to leave the king's presence? I'm just an Israelite living my life, doing my thing. Why would I not want to speedily walk away from the king? Well, Solomon knew that the people had much to learn from him. Yeah, this is going it, to, it's a little bit weird. Solomon knew, as he writing this, for those to walk away from him quickly or hastily is to walk away from God-given wisdom. As the king in Israel, God had given him wisdom that the average person in Israel did not have. And to walk away speedily from his presence is to walk away from God-given wisdom. And here's a principle we all need to apply. We should never be quick to walk away from wisdom, ever. We should want to learn from the wisdom that God has given us wherever we find it. We should want to learn what God wants to teach us through those who have walked before us. And then we're told, don't take your stand in an evil cause. Now, I like the way the New American Standard Bible translates this. And I think it, it gets to the heart of this meaning. Because uh, as I was reading through this at first, I thought, my goodness, what if, the, if the king, is he saying that Solomon is, it has some sort of provision to make an evil stand? But Solomon is not talking about the king doing an evil thing. He is warning the people to not walk away from his wisdom and then to not stand for an evil thing. So the NASB says it this way. Do not be in a hurry to leave him, the king. Do not join in an evil manner, matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Do not join in an evil matter. And so when the ESV says, don't make a stand, don't make your stand, take your stand in an evil cause, the command is to the people who are walking away speedily from him. Those who walk away from wisdom quickly, who do not want to learn the things of God, will often take stands for evil causes. If you don't know right and wrong according to God, you will make your stand with whatever you think is just or right in your own mind. And the warning goes out, don't make your stand to an evil cause because the king will do something. He has the authority to do whatever he pleases and he will bring judgment upon such people. You can't answer back or say back, well, what are you doing, king, when he comes and brings his judgment upon those who are breaking God's law? The king does whatever he sees. When he sees an evil cause and he acts, do not speak back. What are you doing? Because his word is supreme. So if we're a good Israelite sitting here thinking, okay, well, I'm going to respond to King Solomon here. I don't want to go out and stand for a cause that's evil because Solomon will bring judgment upon me. And I will not be able to be in a place as a subject to speak back to him. So we should heed his words. I want to hear more about the king's word. Look at 5 and 6. Solomon's going to speak more. As he gives his word, whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will always know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavily upon him. So Solomon, the man with wisdom, God-given wisdom, begins to speak with that wisdom. And he tells us that everyone has orders to follow. Everyone has orders to follow. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. 
We all have commands from God, and we have commands from people. Now, we may say, well, I don't like that. Here's the deal. Everybody is subject to somebody. Everybody. We live in a society that hates the word submission, and the Bible doesn't hate the word submission. The word submission is a very good thing. Jesus shows us how really good the word submission is when he delightfully obeys his heavenly father. And let me just tell you this. If, if you don't want to be a person who submits, you are not going to get far in life. Men, women, children, everybody. You all have somebody to submit to. Everyone does. We live this life. We need to get rid of the idea that, that I am subject to no one. Everyone is subject to somebody all the way up to God. And subjection is not an evil or a bad thing. No, those who have authority over you can wield that authority in an evil way. We've all probably worked for bad bosses before. Have you not? Have you worked for somebody that's a, a, a tyrannical jerk? <laughs> How bad can a, bo a bad boss make life for his or her employees? Really, really bad. Have you ever had a bad teacher before? We've all had bad teachers before. When I was in college, I was not, if I could do college over again, I would do it a lot better and I wouldn't have as much student debt because I would do a lot less intramurals and a lot more school. Um, and instead of having championship t-shirts, which I have a few of, I have, I have a lot of debt and I would rather, much rather, trade in championship intramural t-shirts for less debt. But when I was in college, we had a professor, Dr. Barnett, who was a history professor, and he was known for being a very difficult teacher. Very difficult. But he was also beloved. Everybody loved him. And you wonder, well, how, how, is the, how are these two things go together? A good teacher can be very, very hard on their students and yet be adored by their students because he's a good teacher. We all wanted to do well for, Ms. for, for Dr. Barnett. We all wanted to do well. And that was one of the best classes that I ever took. I worked really hard, and I got a good grade in that class. A good teacher, a good authority figure can make life really good for their subjects or really terrible. And so you find yourself in life and everybody has somebody to submit to. Everyone does. And if you will follow the commands of those who are in authority over you, it will go well to you. You will know no evil thing. And then the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. If you're a person who knows how to follow commands, knows how to follow orders, you also become a wise person in life. The wise heart knows that there's a time and a way for everything. They know the right thing and the right thing to do in the right time to do it. A wise man or woman knows their place and they know how to take orders and they know what to do and when to do it. God's way and in God's time. But we're told even the man or woman who knows how to do things God's way and God's time, they're still going to have trouble. Let me just uh, give you a big shocker here. Uh, life can be very difficult. I don't know if you know that or not, but life can be very hard. And even though the Christian has joy and we love life, we enjoy life, we smile and we see what God is doing in the world, life comes with difficulties. It can be really hard. Leadership can be really hard. To have those underneath you that you're in authority over comes with great responsibility. It can be very, very difficult. And even though you know how to follow orders, you know the right time and the right way to do it. Man's trouble lies heavy upon him. There's still questions. There's still limits. There is still difficulty. Look at verse 7 through 9. For he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him what it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war. 
nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All of this I observed while applying my heart to all that's done under the sun when man has power over man to his hurt. Uh, even, even the wisest person among us has limits to their wisdom. And this is where we get into this intellectual pride thing that we want to war against. The wise man, in his wisdom, does not know how things will turn out. No matter how much wisdom you have, man or woman, you do not know what tomorrow holds. You cannot control tomorrow. You can't. You cannot control the election that's coming up in November. You can't control the outcome of a game. You cannot control the outcome of the lives of your children. Or the lives of your parents, for that matter. And, and for some people, that this drives them absolutely crazy. If you're a control freak in here, like if you want control, if you want to pull the levers, and, and you don't have peace unless you got hold of the steering wheel, you know what I'm talking about. It drives you crazy that you can't know what tomorrow holds. Because I want to be able to plan it out. How often do our plans turn out completely different than how we planned them? The, 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 the desire, the desire to control outcomes is not a holy desire. To control outcomes is not a holy desire. But the intellectually proud man or woman wants to do just that. They're not satisfied. Not satisfied with not knowing what tomorrow holds. He does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? There are limitations, and we'll get to more of that in a bit. In verse 8, we're told that you cannot retain the spirit. Not only are the limitations about tomorrow and being able to control tomorrow or not being able to control tomorrow, there are limits upon our human ability to control ourselves. The man cannot retain his spirit. He cannot stop sinning. If you're not a Christian in here, there, there is the possibility of doing some moral reform. Okay? AA has worked for a lot of non-Christians to get them to control external actions. But AA and external actions do not reveal or do not, cannot get you to a changed heart. I don't know if you know about this, this or not, but sin, once you get control or a non-believer does a, a behavioral change in one area, there's behavioral things that begin to happen in another area. It's just, it just shifts from one area to the next. And we experience this even as believers where we attack one sin through the power of the gospel. And, you know, three years after attacking that one sin, you look back and you say, man, there's been some, some mighty progress here. God's done a great work. And then you know, all, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to new things that you need to work on, things you didn't see before. Think, is this ever going to end? No, until Christ returns or calls us home. And so the spirit within a man cannot be bridled by that man. There are limitations. He cannot stop sinning. A man does not have power over his own spirit or even the day of death. Look at this. Power to retain the spirit or the power over the day of death. A man does not even, does not even have power over his day of death. Even the man who kills himself. I want to be careful with little ears, so I want to ask you to use your mind here today. Um, when, I, when I first thought about this, I, I, I always think about King Saul. I always think about, I have friends that have, have done what I just said, and uh, it's, it's very difficult. And it sure does seem like that there are people ca that can have power over the day of death. Now, I know that, you know, the person who goes out and gets in a car crash doesn't have power over that. They couldn't have stopped that. You can play the what-if scenario. What if they would have turned 
you know, to the right rather than the left? Or what if they had stopped rather than trying to go through that yellow light? Those kinds of questions. But when we think about the ability of the human, human being over life and death, I, I go to that. I go to, I go to the philosophical uh, rabbit trail of, of those who have harmed themselves. And you, you think about King Saul. As I was reading through my Bible reading plan a few years ago, I, I caught this and thought, huh, that's an interesting way to take King Saul. To some of you, this will be a comfort, but I want us to see the, the limitations that the human being has, even with self-harm. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14, um, we hear these words, He did not seek guidance from the Lord. This is the Apostle Paul talking about King Saul. If you don't know, King Saul fell on his own sword. Fell on his own sword. He, he, he took his life. The Apostle Paul said, He did not seek guidance from the Lord, therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. The, the Lord put him to death. The Lord put him to death. Or Acts 13, 22. And when he, he, God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. We think about the day of death. Nobody knows their future. Nobody can control their future. No matter how hard you think about it, no matter how much you graph it out on your paper, you cannot, you cannot get a hold of tomorrow and you cannot retain your spirit and you cannot have control over the day of your death. Even King Saul. The Lord put Saul to death, judged him, and gave the kingdom over, David, over to David. Let me ask you this. Did Saul kill himself? Yes. Did God put him to death? Yes. Did Saul remove himself? Yes. Did God remove Saul? Yes. Even Saul's day of death was in the hand of the Lord. No one can escape the Lord. No one can say to God, I'm going to control how this ends. Nobody can take death into their own hands and it be apart from the God of the universe. The day of death belongs to God. Life and death belong to the Lord. And when you're at war with this, you're going to be told one day how it really is. Solomon continues on with these limitations. Not only can you not have control over how things are going to turn out, over the spirit inside yourself, or over the day of death, there is no discharge from war, nor will the wickedness deliver those who are given to it. If you're in war, if you're in battle, and King Solomon has said, go to war, there's no way you can get out of war when you're on that battlefield. You cannot opt out. And friends, this is how life is. You can't opt out of this thing. You've got to face it head on. You can't tuck tail and run. You've got to face the challenges that come. There's no way out. And it's impossible for wickedness to deliver from wickedness. If you're in wickedness, you cannot make yourself right. You can shift that wickedness a little bit, but you can never deliver yourself. Wickedness will not deliver from wickedness. And men have power to hurt other men, according to verse 9. Pain is always present in this world. But Solomon begins to preach again. He, the preacher begins to return. And he's like, okay, there, the, again, this is, is not all an exercise in futility. Look in verse 10 and 11. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. 
Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man are fully set to do evil. Here's what Solomon says. Wicked people get praised in the very city in which their wickedness was done. What's going on? And he's setting for us, setting, setting us up for an, an answer to a question. And we should be asking this question, why is that the way it is? Seems so vain. Like he says, it's vanity. Wicked people get celebrated for their wickedness. They get praised after their death in the very place that they've done their evil. Wickedness does pay off for a season. And some people's wickedness leads them to the gutter, gutter and others people, other people's wickedness leads them into a mansion. Some people's wickedness leads them into public shame, and others, their, wisdom, their, their wickedness leads them to public praise. But Solomon tells us that in time, God will have his way. Judgment will come. That's exactly what he says in 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will not be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. Yet, I know that it will be well for those who fear, fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. And this, this preacher preaches, in time, God will bring justice. God will bring justice. The sinner may laugh and his laughs may get adulation. But one day, one day, it will be the one who fears God that will be rewarded, and it will not go well for the wicked. So Epstein, you know, has been in the news. You know, Epstein didn't kill, kill himself, hashtag. Still don't think he killed himself, but that makes you a wild, crazy conspiracy theorist. But, but he didn't. I mean, come on. <laughs> he lived out his fantasies. This is all public record. At the expense of of people he abused, and he got rewarded with it for a while. He got rewarded with it for a while. He got friends in high places. And he got to live out his wickedness. And most likely he died unrepentant. And he is now facing the eternal judgment of God, experiencing God's wrath. And although that got him into mansions... And the praise of powerful people, his wickedness did not impress God. And justice has come. Sometimes we see this, this thing happen where uh, people get rewarded for their evil. And it just, it's confusing. I think it's confusing for everybody. These are the peculiar providences that, that Andy was talking about where um, it seems like the reverse of karma happens. And this is observable from generation to generation, where you know a really terrible person in life ended up really, you know, from the outside looking really good for that person. They made a lot of money being really crooked. And then we all know people who seem like the sweetest people in the world, the nicest people in the world, and their life, you just look at it and you're like, that doesn't feel right. I know a family, and, I've got, and I have family members where their whole family, just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Or sickness after sickness after sickness after sickness. I, and I think if I just took a poll, I mean, do you guys know the opposite end of the spectrum? Do you, get, you know jerks whose life seems to go really well? And then people who are really sweet whose life seem to go really bad? Can everybody say like, okay. It's like, yes. 
the, the atheist looks at this and they say, well, obviously there's no God. Okay? Uh, people look at this and then wonder, why is, the, why is this the way it is? And then others look and they really believe in this karma idea that if you just do good things, then good things will happen in time. Well, Solomon had these same questions. <laughs> and I love how practical the scriptures are. I love how the Bible is really honest, and I love how, how honest King Solomon is. Look at verse 16. This, these verses are just tremendously powerful. Excuse me. Verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, and there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. I said that this is also vanity. Now, there, there are people that think the Bible is this archaic work and that we can trust some things in it that make sense for us today and we can't trust other things. And, and the whole deal is if you, you take it, you, if you take some, you have to take it all. If you only want some of it, you can't have any of it. But we come to the scriptures and we submit to all of it. And I, I love how relevant, relevant God's word is for every single generation. We've been having the same questions from one generation to the next down through the millennia. And Solomon just articulated what we all just agreed upon. Yes, we have seen those people and their life goes according to the, according to the wicked and they seem really righteous. And we've seen righteous whose life, or the wicked whose life goes what, according to what we think the life of the righteous should go. Solomon says it for us, clearly. It's like reverse karma. So how does King Solomon respond to all this? Does he give, give us some magnificent tome for us to be able to read, some philosophical, un, you know, not untire? How does he respond? Well, look at verse 15 again. I commend joy. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go well with him in his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. What Solomon says to all this craziness that's out there is don't lose your joy over it. Instead of moaning about the questions in life, instead of raising your fists in anger, instead of having to figure it out, and wrestling in, the, in your sleep at night, wondering, why are things the way they are? Be committed to joy. Eat, drink, be joyful. Don't let what you can't figure out rob you of what's in front of you. And friends, there are massive questions in life. But as I was coming in this morning, I was talking to Ransom. We are driving and saying, buddy, how awesome is life? Christians are able to see how wonderful life is. Life can be difficult. It can be very, very hard being honest with him about life, but think about how wonderful life is. We have seasons, four seasons, especially in Southern Illinois. We have these four seasons, and if we can wake up to what's in front of us, there is a lot to be joyful about. The family you do have, your family might be really terrible. There may have been some terrible things happen to your, to your family and in your family, but if you'll wake up and just look around you right here, there, there are people who love you. You're not alone. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. And if you're looking for a community of people to not, to not to feel alone, welcome. You're not alone. The God of the universe is there with you and for you, and we're here with you and for you. And I was talking to Ransom how great life is. There's a lot to be excited about. The Lewises gave us a little Power Wheels. And our kids get to drive a Power Wheel. We hacked out a little trail, and they drive through a trail. And you know what? When I watch them do that, 
There's so much joy there. Be committed to that. Don't lose sleep over huge questions of life and miss watching your children drive through a trail in the woods. Don't be so frustrated with the election coming up that you fail to taste the good food you eat for lunch. Um, you guys know that there's some difficult things going on in my life with, with, uh, with, with my dad. Um, if I let it, that could rob a lot of joy from me. But I have people here that love me. I have the God of the universe who sent his son to die in my place. What is there to fret about? I want to be fiercely committed to joy. I don't want to waste my, waste, waste my life. Waste it. Complaining and being frustrated that life isn't the way I think it should be. But the intellectually proud can't have it. Nope. God needs to get in line with my agenda. What I think. Here's the, here's the deal, friend. You can't, friends, you cannot understand the sovereign will of God. The secret things of God belong to him. And I want to challenge us to embrace our limitations. And all of this has led up to verse 16 and 17. I want you to look at this with me. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. I want you to embrace your limitations. It says, even though your eyes don't see sleep, what does that mean? How neither day nor, nor night do one's eyes see sleep. The reason in this passage that the eyes don't see sleep is because they're frustrated with the business that's done under the earth. So the man or woman who looks at life and just tries to figure things out and, and tries to understand why things are the way they are, they're, they're not going to sleep at night. Their eyes are going to be restless. And some of you know what this means. If you're, if you're a worrier and, and you have something that you're obsessed with or obsessing about and you're worrying, you go to bed at night and you try to sleep and you're frustrated that you can't sleep because all you're thinking about is whatever it is that you're fixated on. And these are things that we all, these are common among men and, and, and women. These are common where we struggle to, to just worry. You know, there, there's propensity to worry or to lose sleep. There is a better way. If we can embrace the limitations that God has put upon us, we can walk in wisdom. Here is the absolute truth that Solomon is saying. We cannot understand the secret things of God. In verse 17, we're talking about the sovereign will of God. And I want to break, out, break down the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God here in a second. In verse 17 specifically, he said, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Uh, the sovereign will of God, the sovereign will, is also called his secret will or his will of decree. These are theological terms and ideas that come from the scriptures, and they come from passages like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. He works all things to the counsel of his will. All things to the counsel of his will. Everything that's under the sun, God works to the counsel of his will. How? Well, that's a secret. I don't know how he works all things to the counsel of his will. His sovereign decree has things in it that are secret, that we don't understand. How is God using evil to the counsel of his will. I don't know, but he is. The secret things belong to God, the work under the sun. The work of God, it's the work of God that cannot be figured out. And if we're honest, as we have been during this sermon, 
we've all had the question, why are things the way they are? Why does this happen or that not happen? Why does God seem to answer their prayer in that way, but not my prayer in my way? Why are they blessed with this, and I'm not blessed with this? Some of this goes deep into your own prayer closet, or into your drive to work, or when you're home alone and the tears begin to cry, begin to flow. You're thinking, why? Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed, what's revealed, belong to us and to our children forever. If we try to figure out the secret things as if they are revealed things, our eyes won't see sleep. There are things that are, are not intended for us to know. We have to be at peace with that. Have to be. If you're not at peace with not being God, you will live a frustrating life. We have to embrace that limitation. We won't find out what we want to find out, we have to embrace that. But there's something that Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that is revealed. And so when we find ourselves yet again in a situation we don't understand and it's driving us mad, what do we do? Because more times like that are coming, I promise. More difficult, confusing times are coming in your life. And I want you to be prepared, just like days like this, I want you to be better prepared to handle it. Solomon wants you be, be, to be prepared to handle it. What can you expect to know and not know during times like that? How can you sleep through difficulty rather than be staring at the ceiling at night? How can you face life's difficulties better tomorrow than we do today? Well, what's been revealed? Um, Nancy Wilson, I, I think she was quoting her father-in-law, said, when you face a situation you don't understand, don't ask why. Ask, what is my duty in this? What's my responsibility in this? What has been revealed in, in this? What's been revealed? Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, again, as we launch from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 into Deuteronomy, into the law. Secret things are God. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. There are obligations for us in that passage. God has revealed a few things for us that are helpful for us in season of confusion. Number one, God has revealed the gospel of Jesus Christ to us. He has revealed his love for us in Christ Jesus. This is how God shows his love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's revealed. That's not concealed. If your eyes have been opened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, that is his revealed work to you. It's not, it's, there's no veil over it. It's not concealed. There's no question mark there. That's truth right there for you in your confusion. God's love, God loves me. I know for certain he loves me because he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for me. And that's how he shows me his love. Friends, that's for you. That's revealed. That's his revealed will. And friends, that's enough for you in seasons that you have questions. That central truth of God's love for you in Christ Jesus is enough for you. It's enough for you when you're confused. When life when life throws you a curveball, 
When you don't know, God, what, well, how am I going to make it? You go to what's revealed. The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. The gospel of Jesus has been revealed. What else has been revealed? The commands of God have been revealed to us. The commands of God. The law of God is good. It cannot save us. The law of God cannot save us. Only Christ keeping the law can save us on our behalf. But friends, the law of God is good. And when God says something is right or something is wrong, he's right every time. Do not hear me. We live in a society that rages against God's law, hates God's law. And we have Christians who even say, well, God's law is no big deal for people who don't embrace the Bible. They don't even believe in the Bible. It is a big deal. And people will be held accountable whether they know it or not. And what God says on any given controversial subject, what he says, he says, and he does not stutter about it. God's law is good. The commands of Scripture. When we're in a situation... And we don't know why somebody has sinned against us. And it's frustrating. They're family members, for goodness sake. We've got to sit at the same table at Thanksgiving. And I'm going to be sitting there the whole time wondering, like, are, are they even going to apologize? Do they know that they've wronged me? And then we hear Ephesians 4, 32 come to our mind. The Holy Spirit, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's been revealed. Why did that person sin against you? That, that's the secret thing that belongs to God. What's been revealed? You forgive that person as God, God in Christ has forgiven you. That's been revealed. Don't be intellectually proud and think you've got to figure it all out. Do what God has called you to do. Do your duty. God has shown us the Christ, the cross. He has revealed his love. He has given us his word. And the things that we cannot figure out, simply ask, what is my responsibility in this? And then, here's the big idea. Obey. Obey the Lord. Obey your way out of confusion. Worship your way out of confusion. Give thanks to God for his love for you in Christ Jesus. Out, out of confusion. Out of your questions. Or, you can just stay and keep your eyes open at night. And you can wallow. And you can demand answers from God. And you can raise your fist in frustration. You can stomp your feet. God, why are things the way they are? Or you can fight for joy. And obey what's been revealed to you. The deep things, the secret things belong to God. You cannot find out what is done underneath the sun. Look to him and trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to use our minds... You tell Timothy in 1 Timothy to think over what I say. We're to use our minds. We're not to check them at the door.